You know, everybody hates to be embarrassed, don't they? Nobody likes that stinging feeling of shame where we become the center of attention just to become the butt of everybody's joke. We've all had it happen, and uh, we all hate it. You can't ever get used to it. And I think looking back over my life, um, I've suffered a lot of embarrassment. Anybody who speaks publicly as much as I do is going to be embarrassed a lot. It's just part of it. But I think for me, the most embarrassing season of my life is when I was a baseball player as a kid. Now, you've got to understand that as a kid, I really did love baseball. I loved watching baseball. I loved playing baseball. This was in the glory days of the Atlanta Braves. And I loved baseball. But God did not give me an ounce of athletic ability. That's why to exercise, that's why I like to run and jog. Because all you have to do to do it right is breathe and not fall down. That's it. It's perfect for me. But I really wanted to be, I really wanted to be a star baseball player when I was a kid. And so I, I played for a couple of years when I was seven or eight years old. And y'all, I was bad. Real bad. Here's how bad I was. I always wore number 47 for Tom Glavin, pitcher for the Atlanta Braves. And like Tom Glavin, I was the pitcher for our team. But I was so bad, it was a machine pitch team. <laughs> Which meant my position was literally to stand there by the machine. I was so bad, so bad, that they would not let me swing at the ball in games. They said, you just stand here. And maybe you'll get walked. I was so bad that the best game I ever had, I did score two runs that game. I still remember it vividly. But the only reason I ever got on base was because I got hit. Twice. Didn't even have enough sense and ability to get out of the way. That was the best game I ever had. The worst game I ever had, we lost 52-3. to We all know what it's like to be embarrassed, don't we? Embarrassment shapes us and scars us and molds us. And there's so much of our lives, so many things that we do out of the fear of being embarrassed and being the butt of the joke. But do you ever feel today, if you'd be honest, that some of this Jesus stuff is a little embarrassing? Some of this, this church stuff, this, this Christian stuff, it's a little embarrassing. Just maybe doesn't look good to the smart people in your life. So maybe you kind of keep it secret. There are parts of the gospel message that maybe are a little bit offensive to our modern sensibilities. And so we are tempted to cut corners or to shave the hard edges off of the message that we proclaim. Have you ever been embarrassed by the message of Jesus? Today we're going to look in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 at a church that really their fundamental problem that Paul's addressing in this part of the letter is that they are embarrassed by Jesus. In some way they want to believe that maybe there's a way to put a new spin on the gospel. Maybe there's a way to make over the Christian message that's going to make it more appealing and more interested, more interesting and, and more comfortable. For people in a watching world. 
And we have that same temptation today out of our fear of embarrassment. Maybe if we could adjust Christianity to fit into the can-do American spirit, the entrepreneurial, innovative spirit of people like Steve Jobs, then maybe Christianity could have a place in this world. Or maybe if we could wrap up our Christian presentation in the best technology and with the witty delivery of somebody like John Stewart, then maybe, maybe Christianity would fit. Where does Christianity fit? Let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse number 18. If you don't have a Bible with you today, we've got the words on the screen. I would ask you to follow along with us as we read our text. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse number 18. Paul says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But... To us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than than men. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remaineth forever. Now, if you're with us last Sunday morning as we began diving into this first main section of the book of 1 Corinthians, I told you that this is a letter written to a fractured and a divided church. And even if you weren't with us last week, chances are that you've probably been in a church like this at some point that has all of the drama of a high school cheerleading team. That's the church of Corinth. They can't get along. They can't see eye to eye. Everybody is split into different factions. Some people say, well, we are the Paul tribe. We are the Peter tribe. We are the Apollos tribe. And then they're the super spiritual jerks who say, we are the Jesus tribe. And Paul is writing here, really in the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians, to address this division in the church that has arisen over the personalities of their favorite preachers and over the preferences that people have about how their church should look and how it should function and how it should feel. And ultimately, Paul says at the end of 1 Corinthians 1.17, he says to them, listen, if you will remember when I preached to you, I intentionally committed to never do anything that would ever be a wedge of division between the people of God. He said, I came to you preaching Christ, who is the power of God, because Jesus must always be the center of attention among his church. And so what Paul's getting at here is that churches divide when something other than Jesus becomes more important than Jesus. When they put the cross off to the side, And they replace the centrality and the importance of Jesus with anything else. No matter how good it is, the result's always going to be disaster. But the Corinthians really had cultural reasons for doing what they did. And that's because Corinthian culture was a can-do culture. 
They were driven by success. They were driven by a need to be impressive and a need to be important. And they understood what most of us understand, that if you can't be impressive, and if you're not all that important, then maybe the best thing you can do, (coughs) excuse me, the best thing you can do is attach yourself to somebody who is impressive or attach yourself to somebody who is important. Like those little fish that swim right under the shark. I don't know how that works. But that's what the Corinthians were trying to do. Trying to just fix themselves to power. Fix themselves to success. And so they had done that with these preachers that had come through Corinth. Even though these preachers were sincere and devoted to preaching the gospel, the Corinthians were trying to subvert all of this and put the attention on themselves to prove how important they were. And to prove how influential they were. And to prove how impressive they were. And even though our culture is very different than the Corinthian culture was 2,000 years ago, there are a lot of similarities. We live in a culture that is fixated on celebrity. Just obsessed with what celebrities wear and who they date and what kind of coffee they drink and what kind of $600 makeup they wear. We are obsessed with important people. And we might even hope that one day maybe we could be something like them Every kid today, I told you, when I grew up, I wanted to be a baseball player. That's what normal American boys wanted to be when they grew up. Now kids want to be YouTube influencers. What has happened to our country? We're so fixated with getting all of the hits and all the eyes on us. And sometimes we think that the way to go about having power or the way to go about being impressive is that you try really, really, really hard in school. So you get into a really great Ivy League college and you go to Harvard and you go to Yale and then you do your understudy at the Supreme Court and then you get elected to the Congress and now you matter and now you are important. Everybody will notice you. That's our culture too. We're obsessed with importance and success and ability and influence and being impressive. And where does the message of a bloodied, broken, crucified, dying God fit in that way of thinking? Paul's going to say it doesn't fit. He says you need a new way of thinking. Where God has embarrassed the wisdom of the world. And God has humbled the power of the world. And God has declared that even in his weakness at the cross, he is more powerful than the most powerful in the world. And even in the seeming foolishness of the cross, he shows more wisdom than the world could ever hope to attain on its own. What Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is that God at his worst is greater than men at their best. And he does it first by highlighting that the cross is the point of division between those that believe and those that don't believe. The cross is the point of division. He says in verse number 18, he says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. The people in Corinth that weren't Christians, and even in the ancient world at large, when they heard the message of the gospel, when they heard this message of salvation and forgiveness that all centered around a man dying on a cross, they were insulted. They were offended to think that a God would humble himself like that. To think that our sin was so serious that the only remedy was that a man died in our place. In fact, in the ancient world, 
to even talk about crucifixion in public was considered highly offensive. That was just one of those words that you didn't bring up. It was a subject everybody knew was off limits. And now the Corinthians are believing this message and they're singing about the cross and they're proclaiming the cross and they're starting to feel the pressure of embarrassment because they realize their message of the gospel does not fit. And Paul says to those that are perishing, the word of the cross is foolishness. It's folly. The word folly is the Greek word that we get our English word moron from. Y'all know what something is if it's moronic, right? That means it's plumb stupid. Now, y'all know what plumb stupid is, right? I always got to make sure in the deep south that my Appalachian English translates. Plumb stupid is stupid on steroids. And when people heard the message of the gospel... They thought, this is just plumb stupid. In a fast-paced, image-obsessed, success-obsessed, power-hungry, succeed-at-all-cost culture like Corinth, the message of the cross is just plumb stupid. And Paul will say in verse number 22 that this rejection comes from two places within two groups of people. He says the Jews, they reject the message of the cross. Because they want signs. They want power on display. The Greeks reject it because they want to see wisdom. So he says the Jews demand signs. They wanted to see proof. Power. They wanted to see that this Jesus stuff was legitimate because God was doing what could not be denied. And in truth, you can't blame them for thinking that. The Jews had thousands of years of history where they had seen God flex His muscles time and time again. God had delivered them through the Red Sea. God had used Joshua to conquer their promised land. God had delivered Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego from the fiery furnace. Those were the stories that the Jewish people grew up on. They had them for breakfast every single day. And they said, our God is the true God of heaven and earth. And our God is the God of power. In fact, the Bible says in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God... That is Elohim, the powerful one, created the heavens and the earth. They said, show us power. And the Christian gospel preached weakness. It preached death. It preached a Savior dying naked and alone, rejected, spat upon. That doesn't look like power. That looks like an embarrassing display of inability. But the Greeks, they rejected the gospel because they sought wisdom. And Corinthian culture was downstream from hundreds of years of of Greek influence. And the Greeks really did love wisdom. They gave us the the study of philosophy, which means to love wisdom. And they loved any idea that was new, that was complex, that was convoluted, that had a lot of big words attached to it, that made people sound really, really smart, like they really, really got it. That really, really excited the Greeks. And think about it. The Greeks gave the world some of the greatest and best and brightest people that have ever lived. Socrates was not from Jasper, y'all. He was Greek, right? The Greeks gave the world democracy. Think about how smart that was. So that every time now, when you're riding around and you see the 5,000 yard signs of people who are running for Jefferson County Sheriff, you should thank the Greeks for that. The Greeks gave the world the Pythagorean theorem. Every time you drive across a suspension bridge, you should thank God for Greek culture. The New Testament was written in Greek. These people were bright. 
And they said, give us something that is going to stimulate the nerves in our frontal lobe. And then the Christians preached this embarrassing, shameful, silly message of a crucified Savior. And they said, that is not smart. That is moronic. He even says in verse 23, it was a stumbling block to them. That is to say, it was a scandal to them. They were offended. It insulted their intelligence when they heard it. Christianity that centers on the cross, that is all about Jesus' dying and rising again, that message is going to have a hard time finding any footing in the marketplace of ideas. But y'all, I'll be honest with you. If you take the cross out of it, Christianity can compete just fine. If Christianity can be tailored to be kind of this therapeutic self-help message about how people can be better, Christianity will do just fine. It'll do just fine on Oprah. That's not a thing anymore, is it? But it would do just fine on The View. It'll do just fine on CNN or Fox News. If Christianity is really not about God coming into the world to rescue, but about how politicians and political parties can save us, Christianity will do okay. If Christianity is really a message all about me and things that I need to do or things that I want to hear, then it'll probably do all right. But when you say that Christianity is about God dying in our place, in the place of His Son, the Lord Jesus, man, that seems awful tone deaf, doesn't it? It seems unmarketable. It seems uninteresting. So for those on the outside looking in, they said the message of the cross is foolishness. But... Paul says in verse 18, for those of us who are on the inside, for those of us who have believed, Paul says this message, it is the power of God that will save us. Paul says we have come to understand that it is on the cross of Jesus Christ that our God flexed his muscles on our behalf when he stretched out his arms to die in our place. He says it is at the cross of Jesus Christ where our God etched right here in the middle of human history an undeniable message about His wisdom and He did it using a hammer and three nails. Paul said we have come to see that it is at the cross of Jesus Christ where God has displayed His greatest power and His deepest wisdom. He said this is the message that has saved us. See, the Jews and the Greeks, for all they disagreed upon, the one thing they would agree upon was that the message of the cross did not proclaim much of a God. What kind of God would go and get himself crucified? What kind of God would be humbled? What kind of God would turn himself over to the wishes of sinful people? That doesn't sound like the God of the Old Testament, who speaks and whole nations bow to his will. That doesn't sound like the gods of the Greeks. That doesn't sound like Zeus the Olympian who conquered the Titans. That doesn't sound like Poseidon who ruled the uncontrollable sea. That doesn't sound like any kind of God at all. What kind of God goes and gets himself crucified? Paul says the kind of God who gets crucified is the kind of God who's so powerful that his power is not diminished at all when men spit in his face. Our God, Paul says, is a God who is so wise that his wisdom does not erode even though he gives himself over to death to save his people. Paul says that our God is a God who uses his power and uses his wisdom to side with the weak and the foolish of the world to rescue them from their sin so that they can be with him. Paul says, you look at that, 
And you don't see wisdom. But it is the wisdom of God. You may not sense power. But he says that is when God was at his most powerful. When it appeared Jesus was at his worst. God was at his best. But I will give the Jews and the Greeks credit for one thing that we might miss. And that is, they understood that if the cross, the message of a crucified Savior, really was the central claim of the Christian faith, they really understood that that message then had to be accepted or rejected. It could not be adjusted. The Corinthians wanted to adjust it to make it about something other than Jesus. The Jews and the Greeks were right. That if it is about a crucified, resurrected Savior, you either take it or you leave it. That's an important thought for us to consider today because it means that the message of the cross can never be synthesized down to a really cool tattoo. It can't just be decoration in the church building. But it should be central to our lives and central to our church. All of our eyes should be on the work of Christ in the cross. And so the cross has become the point of division in their world. But Paul is wanting them to see that the cross ought to be the center of attention for all of the people of God. The cross is the center of attention. In this self-obsessed world, right in the middle of human history, God declared His power to save. He declared His wisdom to embarrass the wisdom of the world, and He did it by taking on flesh taking on sin, and tasting death for every man. So what Paul begins to do in verse number 19 is he begins to show us that not only do we see God's power and wisdom displayed in the cross, but he says the cross displays God's power and wisdom in such a great way that it embarrasses the best and brightest of the world. He quotes Isaiah 29, 14 there in verse 19, and he says, It is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise... And the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. The cross was the, however you want to look at it, either the opening move or the final move in God's game plan to humble human intelligence. It is when God declared forever checkmate. When he defied the philosopher's expectations and the skeptic's speculations and God said, at my worst... I'm still greater than you are at your best. So Paul asks in verse 20, where is the wise? Where is the vaulted philosopher who understands the mysteries of the universe? Where is the scribe? Where is the successful celebrity who should be the center of attention? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? Where are the pontificating philosophers, and where are the educated experts? Paul seems to say if they have any sense at all, they'll be humbled in the dirt at the foot of Mount Calvary. And they'll be worshiping Jesus as their Savior. He says otherwise, they've missed it all. As smart as they may be, they've missed the one most critical detail in all of human history, in all of the world, in all of life. They've missed it all together. So he says in verse number 21, In the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, He says, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those that believe. He makes an incredible statement there. He says that in the wisdom of God, God determined that man would never know God by man's wisdom. That God would never be fully understood 
through human investigation. That God would never be fully defined by human deliberation. That God would never be fully known through human thought or ability or reason or wisdom or description. Why? Why? Because God is smart enough to know that if we were smart enough to know God on our own, then all we would ever talk about is not Him, but about how smart we were. And Paul is saying here that God has determined that none of us will ever be the center of attention, but that His Son who went to the cross in power and in wisdom, He should always be the center of attention. But it is worth considering here today, since Paul says that human wisdom will never really fully comprehend God, it is worth considering today the reality of what Paul puts on us. And we should feel the weight of what Paul says. That left to ourselves, we will never really see God as He is. We'll never really know Him as He is. We can guess, we can speculate, we can figure but we're going to miss something somewhere. The Bible says, Paul would write in Romans 3.10, that there is no one who understands. None are righteous. No one understands. No one seek for God. Without the cross of Jesus Christ being the full explanation of who God is, you're going to miss something about it. You're going to get Him wrong. The cross of Jesus Christ is the crucial piece of information the vital piece of evidence you have to have to know who God is and to know what He's like. Otherwise, you could probably figure out that God is powerful. Paul seems to indicate in Romans chapter 1, for instance, that you should be able to look around at this universe and figure out that God is powerful. But without the cross, you would never know that God uses that power to save. In other words, without, without the cross of Jesus Christ, you would never really know that God is good to you. You would probably know that God is in control. You could figure that out on your own, that God is all-powerful and sovereign and running things just fine without our help. But what about when the world seems like it's spinning off its axis? And what about when your family's falling apart? Or even in the bigger picture, what about when your country is invaded? Is God in control in those moments when everything seems to be chaotic? He was in control at the cross when Jesus' life was spun into chaos. Because the one who had the nails in his hands, he had the whole world in his hands. Making it all come together exactly the way that he wanted it to come together. Apart from the cross, we'll always miss God. But Paul says, as God's people now, we should see that the cross declares for us the reality of God. And he makes an amazing, amazing contribution to our thinking in verse 21. As he says to us that what we ought to realize about the cross is that the cross is a display of God's pleasure to save. Look at what he says in verse 21. He says, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. He says, it has pleased God through this message of crucifixion and resurrection. It pleased God to save people through this message. So listen to me today, child of God. If you know Jesus as your Savior this morning, if there's ever been that moment in your life when the very, very best you knew how, you repented of your sins, 
and you put your faith in Jesus as your Savior, and you were born again by the Spirit of God, if that has ever happened to you, and you could somehow count all of the blessings that God has given you, not that you could, but if you could inventory them, and if you could list them, and if you could systematize all of the things that God has done for you, and if you started tracing the thread back, trying to figure out, why did God do this? Why has been God been so good to me? And if you could trace that thread all the way back to its very origin, the starting point for every good thing you have in Jesus is the pleasure of God. That God was happy to do it. He wanted to do it. He wanted to pour out grace on His people. He wanted to show love to sinners. He wanted to exercise His power on behalf of the weak. He wanted to show His wisdom on behalf of those who did not have it understood. And so Paul is coming to us to say that the Christian message is not the message that the world is preaching to you. The world is preaching to you a message that says you have to succeed and you have to be smart enough and you have to be impressive and you have to be good. The Christian message comes to you and says that God stands with the weak and God is pleased to love the foolish and God shows His power on behalf of the powerless. And so Paul says, where is the wise? Where is the powerful? He says, look to Christ crucified. He says in verse number 24, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul asks us, where can you go in the world to see power? Where do you go to really see power? You could go today to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue in our nation's capital. And not that they would ever let you in, but you could go. And you could stand at the fence and you could look at that big white house you're paying for. There's power, like it or not, there's power inside the walls of that place to change the future of countless millions of lives. Power to change the future in our nation's capital. But at the cross of Jesus Christ, you see God's power to change the people's past. You could drive to NASA, you could do it in Huntsville, or you could go to Florida or Texas. And you could meet rocket scientists, actual engineers, who have the power to put people in space, the power to put people on the moon, the power to put people in the International Space Station and equip them to live there for a year or so at a time. But you can go to the cross of Jesus Christ and you can see God's power to put a man in heaven. You could go to UAB today, and there are people there that are intelligent enough to design robots that will take the heart out of a dead person and put it in a living person. But you can go to the cross of Jesus Christ, and you can find the power to make dead men live. Where do you go to see wisdom in our world? Do you go to a college campus where they're lecturing about astrophysics? Do you go to Congress to see the... But no. Where do you go to see wisdom in our world? Paul says you go to the cross of Jesus Christ because there you see God's wisdom displayed in high definition. Because at the cross of Jesus Christ, God in His wisdom sovereignly allowed men to sin against Jesus, to put Jesus on a cross so that Jesus crucified could save those men from their sins. At the cross of Jesus Christ, you see God's wisdom in using the work of the devil 
to put Jesus on a cross so that Jesus could save all of us from the work of the devil. At the cross of Jesus Christ, you see God's wisdom in embracing death so that you could have life. Paul says, look to the cross. That's where you see God. That's where you see His power. That's where you see His wisdom. And that is where all of your attention should be today. And so I want to tell you today that what the Bible tells you about knowing God is that you need to look to the God who is hung upon that tree on Calvary's cross. That's where you'll find Him. And we get so confused about this. And some of you need to listen right here. This would revolutionize your faith forever if you would grasp this. What so many of us believe is that we really do need to look to our circumstances to figure out who God is. Or we look to our emotions to figure out who God is. Or we look to our best understanding of who God is. Or we listen just to what the preacher has told us and what Mama taught us. And we kind of cobble together all of this weird Play-Doh amalgamation of what God must really be like. If you want to know who God is today, you look for Him not in your feelings. Not in your circumstances. Not in your best thoughts or even your mama's best wife tales. If you want to know who God is, you look for Him on the tree. Because there you'll see His wisdom. There you'll see His power. There you'll see His love for you. There you'll see His perfect holiness. Look for Him. Walk Him out of that tomb that first Easter morning. That is your God. Look to Him there. Know Him there. See Him there. Believe in Him there. Because that God is better at His worst than any of us could ever be at our best. And church, that is profoundly good news. That is gospel news that changes our lives. Because what most of us believe is that our life is about believing being impressive. Right? We have believed this message that life is about being important. And it's about being impressive. And we feel that this world is constantly pressuring us to believe that we just aren't quite good enough. Ma'am, your family's just not quite good enough, and so, Mom, you need to try a little bit harder. Sir, you just don't make quite enough money, so you need to do a little bit more to buy the better house. You're just not quite good enough to really be impressive. You don't know what the elites know. You don't understand what the best and brightest understand. And we live our lives thinking, We live our lives thinking that we have to be impressive. And so the driving force in every decision that we make is I've got to be important. And I've got to be impressive. And y'all, it is killing us. It's killing us because we've gotten our eyes off of the cross. I told you when I started today that I was a horrible baseball player. But in my mind... my mind at seven or eight years old, I was destined for greatness. I can still remember standing under the maple tree in my grandparents' front yard, doing what all of us did when we were kids, throwing the ball up in the air and hitting it. And every swing, every swing, every swing, not just a home run, every swing was a home run, the bottom of the ninth, game seven of the World Series. And I, I hit the winning run. 
Somehow we come into this world believing this message about our own importance. But I want you to hear the good news of the gospel today. You don't have to be important anymore. You don't have to be impressive. You do not have to engineer and cobble together a perfect life because the one perfect life has been lived for you. And the one perfect life has been laid down for you on this cross. And that one perfect life was taken up for you three days later. Take his life and rest in that. But we also need to learn from the Corinthians here, I think, as a church body. The the church at Corinth really did want to be impressive. They really wanted to be important. And they felt like the message of the cross was in the way of that. And so they thought maybe what they needed to do was emphasize the cross less and emphasize human personality or human gifts or human ability more. That sold well. It marketed well. It played well. And that same temptation is ever-present in the life of the church. And there are so many churches around us today that have given in to that temptation. They have bought the devil's lie hook, line, and sinker to make the church about what sells and what's attractive and not about the crucified God. And so, Sharon Heights, I just want you to hear me today. We could be a cool church. We could be. Y'all, a couple weeks ago, this is embarrassing to admit, a couple of weeks ago I went to the store and needed some jeans, and I accidentally bought a pair of skinny jeans. We could be cool. And they were skinny. I thought I'd bought a pair of yoga pants. I mean, it was... They were so tight, if I had a quarter in my pocket, you could count the freckles on George Washington's nose. I'm telling you. We could be cool. We could be... We could have cool nightclub lights. We could buy some cool fog machines. We've got the money. And we could just quit talking so much about the gospel. And talk a little bit more about you. Talk a little bit more about how great you are. And I could smile a little bit more. And not yell so much. And we could really have something. But what we wouldn't have is the power of God to save. Some of you today are trying to figure out who God is. You know Jesus. You say, I've been saved 10, 15, 20 years, but I'm in a place in my life right now where I'm trying to figure out who God is. I'm trying to figure out, frankly, if God has lost his mind. I'm trying to figure out if God really has any power to change this situation because I've prayed and he doesn't seem to be doing anything. And you are right now trying to figure out who God is. And saying of God, if you're suffering like that today, I just want you to hear what this text reminds you of. And that is that our God is the God of the cross. That our God is the God who does love his people this far. And our God is the God who really does show power in weakness. He shows wisdom in foolishness. That when everything is backward and upside down, and when everything has gone totally wrong, That is when God is at work. That is when God is doing His greatest work. And God is probably doing that for you. Because our God is a God who brings life out of death. Our God is a God who brings blessings out of loss. Our God is a God who brings your eternal salvation out of the death of His Son. And if He does that, 
And you can trust him. You can trust him. And you can know him. You can know him. Revealed in his cross. Let's stand together today as we prepare for an invitation. Let me pray for us quickly now. Father, it's so easy for us to speculate. It's so easy for us to figure, try and figure you out. But Lord, we'll never be able to do it. And yet, Lord, for all of our inability to understand you, you have told us who you are in Christ. You have revealed yourself to us in death and in resurrection. God, I pray for those that are struggling to know you right now. Lord, I pray you would help them to, to anchor themselves in the cross. See you there and believe you there. Lord, I pray for those that are trying so hard to be impressive and they're wearing themselves out. Lord, I pray that the invitation of Jesus to all of those who are weary, to all of those who are heavy laden, to all of those who are worn down and worn out, God, I pray that would ring true in their heart right now. And I pray they would come and take your yoke upon them. They would quit trying to be important. Retire from trying to be impressive. And simply rest in Jesus. God, I pray for our church. That the future of our church would never know a day when Jesus was not at the center. God, let it never happen. Let us never compromise on the gospel. Let us never compromise on the message of Christ crucified for us. Help us to know and believe and understand that it's here that we see your power. And it's here that we see your wisdom in a Savior crucified for us. Do your work in us now, we pray. And I ask in Christ's name.